welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. If you have a Bible, um, we're going to be largely in Hebrews. Um, We'll get there in a little bit. But um, we're in a series, a summer series on biblical doctrine. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the person of Christ. We're going to look at what the Bible says about who Jesus Christ is. And this is such an important topic, guys. It's so important that we would understand who Jesus Christ truly is, because it turns out that the whole universe has been created to display the beauty of Christ. So if we miss the beauty of Christ, we've missed the whole point for the creation of the entire universe. So this is a big deal this morning. This is important. And, um, and it's also important because we can only be saved by knowing Christ. There's no thing that you can do to save yourself. It's only by knowing Christ. And as disciples, we know that we can only make any progress by knowing Christ deeper and by seeing his beauty. That's what frees us from slavery to sin. Robert Murray McChain, he was a preacher in the 1800s. He only lived to be about 30. I think he died of tuberculosis or something, but the guy lived his life fully for 30 years. He said this, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smile of God, bask in his beams, Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and repose in his mighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that he is. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there's no room in it for folly, the world, or Satan, or the flesh. Amen? That sounds like something good to do. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at who is Jesus. And fundamentally, the answer of Scripture is that Jesus is both God and man. Fully God and fully man. Um, We could spend all morning looking at texts that point to the fact that Jesus is God. I'm just going to point you to a few. Don't take this as an exhaustive case. We could spend hours starting from Genesis and going all the way through Revelation. But I want to look at a few. For example, Jesus is given divine titles. Um, Jesus actually called God. So that's pretty straightforward. John 1.1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you drop down to verse 14, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know who that Word is, that's Jesus. He was both with God and was God, and Marcel is going to talk next week about the Trinity, but it's a very clear indication there that Jesus is God himself, um, the triune um, God, God the Son. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, many of you know who have talked to Jehovah's Witnesses that in their Bible they've, they've changed that. In the New World Translation they put a God. He was a God, which doesn't totally make sense even still. But um, even if you're talking to somebody that has a Bible like that, you could just drop them down to verse 23. If you look down to verse 23, Jesus is not only called God, but Jesus is called Lord. In, in John 1.23 it says, John the Baptist says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And if you're talking to somebody that has an altered translation, you drop down to this, you say, well, who's the Lord there? Who, who is the Lord that John the Baptist is talking about? And, and, and just ask him that. Say, who's the Lord in here? And they'll say, of course, it's Jesus. So you look at the context, it's Jesus. And then you ask them, well, what is that quote from? You guys know where that quote's from? It's from Isaiah 40, right? It's from the the passage that Sarah read this morning. It's from Isaiah 40. And go to Isaiah 40 and say, who's the Lord in Isaiah 40? Clearly Yahweh. Clearly God. Clearly Jehovah, right? And so 
Jesus is the Lord. The Lord that they're talking about there is a quotation from Isaiah. He is the God of Isaiah, the one who sits on the circle of the earth, who measures out the dust, uh, the mountains as dust in a balance, and sees us all as grasshoppers and all that, right? All that picture of God's majesty, that is Jesus Christ. That is his pre-existent state. Um, the word Lord can often be used, the Greek word Lord, to be just a respectful term like master or sir, right? But it's very clear from passages like the one we just looked at that the apostles meant something more by it. When they called Jesus Lord, they meant he was Yahweh, Jehovah, God Almighty from the Old Testament um, when, when, they, when they called him Lord. He was also called, called himself the I Am. Um, when, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, remember the name he gave Moses, he said, tell them I Am sent you. It was a name get, that God gave for himself. And then you turn to John 8, 58, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And how they react? He says they picked up stones to kill him, right? Um, we can see what he meant by that, by their reaction. Um, Jesus called himself the son of man, which sounds kind of humble, you know, son of God, son of man, but it's not really actually a humble term. Son of man comes from Daniel 7, and it was this mysterious character that appeared to be human, but also was given God's dominion. He was given divine rights. He was given rights over creation and honor that only belongs to God. It was actually a claim of deity. And we see that in Matthew 26, uh, 64, that Jesus says to the high priest, I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming out of the clouds from heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and says, he utters blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You heard the blasphemy yourself. And so you can see from the high priest's reaction, he knows exactly what Jesus is claiming to be. Jesus is claiming to be the God-man, God in the flesh. And there's a bunch of other titles that you can see where you look at the Old Testament and they're ascribed only to, to Yahweh, only to Jehovah, only to God Almighty. And then the New Testament, they're given to Jesus. T titles like the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega. The Lord's called that in the Old Testament. He's called the Creator, the Judge, the King, the Savior of the world. These are titles only given to the Lord in the Old Testament, are given freely to Jesus as if it's no big deal in the New Testament. So he's clearly portrayed as God. A fun one, too, is that Jesus forgave sins. That's actually a claim to deity, too. In Mark 2, when he uh, forgives a guy, um, some of the religious leaders say this. They say, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They have a good point, right? So if you were to sin against her, and, um, and then I went to you, Joel, and I said, oh, it's okay, I forgive you, you'd be like, what? What does that have to do with you? I can't forgive a, a sin that you've done towards another person because I wasn't the one offended. But of course, we know from Scripture that all sin is ultimately towards God. And so when Jesus is telling people, oh, no, it's okay, you're forgiven, that's a claim to deity. And people knew that. You can see how they reacted. They got very upset. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus did that. Jesus also received worship regularly. And that's a huge deal, too, especially in the Jewish context. When, when Jesus quieted the storm, all the people in the ship, it says that they, they believed in him. They said, truly, you're the Son of God, and they worshiped him. And he didn't say, like, no, 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 right? When the angels are worshipped, what do they do? Don't do that. When Paul got worshipped by somebody, he said, no, 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 don't do that. I don't want a lightning bolt on my head, right? And yet Jesus just quietly receives worship. When he healed the blind man, same thing. Blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. When he was raised from the dead, and, and they all observed him in Luke 24, it says they worshiped him, right? Regularly being worshiped. And guys, this isn't just cases of the disciples kind of getting a little out of control. 
They got kind of caught up in the moment, and they kind of, you know, got in this mood and started worshiping him. It was like a big mistake, you silly fisherman, right? No. It's a picture of what every human being will one day do. Isaiah 45, it says this. It says that, that one day everyone will bow the knee to God, to Yahweh. It says this in Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. And from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said, our righteousness and strength. Very clear, right? Only to Yahweh. Is everybody going to bow the knee? And then what is Philippians? What does Paul say in Philippians? He says this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is pretty straightforward, guys. And we could go on and on and on. Um, worshiping Jesus in this life is actually what makes Christians distinct from other religions. Many people, many religions, and many people just generally they don't have a religion, respect Jesus in some way. But Christians worship him. This is a distinctive. Um, I was discussing the Bible with a guy in Starbucks uh, a couple years ago. But, by the way, that's something we should all do. We should all get together in public, read the scripture together, discuss it, because people come up. It's crazy. It'd be good for both of us, and then, like, people come up, like, hey, what are you doing? You know, it's like, it's like wow, get your own Bible study, you know? Um, <laughs> but people do that. They're like, what are you talking about? And stuff like that. It's actually a really great way of getting the gospel out. But this lady comes up, very, very, very nice Jehovah's Witness lady, and she goes, oh, I see you're reading the Bible. That's great. We have a lot in common. And I'm like, I'm not wanting to be a killjoy here or anything, but, you know, she said, you know, we have, you know, we have a lot in common. We have the same Bible same Jesus. And I said, well, there's a massive difference between us, actually, because if Jesus were to walk in here right now, I would worship him as God, and you wouldn't. It's a big difference, right? I mean, big difference. And, you know, I wasn't trying to be difficult, okay? But that's a big difference we should acknowledge. And I said, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm an idolater. I'm worshiping some man, and that's like the worst possible sin I could be doing. And if you're wrong, you're failing to worship the one true God. So this isn't like a little thing, like, oh, we got different translations. I kind of like this kind of music. No, I worship Jesus, you don't. And this is a really important difference because we're seeing more and more um, that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and stuff wanting to kind of rebrand themselves as we're just like a Christian denomination. You know, don't call us Mormon anymore. Call us the Church of Latter-day Saints so we can kind of look like a Christian church. But guys, it, there's a big difference between respecting Jesus in some kind of way and worshiping him. And I don't think we're being picky to insist on that definition of Christianity, that Christianity is about worshiping Jesus as God. And guys, you know, not to be difficult, once again, but two American religions made in the 1800s can't change that. Okay? Like, Americans shouldn't be making religions. Right? We shouldn't. We do a lot of good things. We make great phones. You know, we made the internet. I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. We should not be making religions, okay? And we should not think that, like, we could come along, like, 1,800 years after the fact and go, actually, Christianity is looking at Jesus as a created being, or actually this, or actually that. It's like, no, these things have been settled. You can call your religion whatever you want, but don't call it Christianity because it's just not for you to reinvent and improve everything. That's what we feel like we can do as Americans, right? Oh, I like what you got there. Man, I can make that better. Like, that's what we always do. We can't do that with Jesus. And there's nothing mean about telling people who don't worship Jesus as God that they aren't really following the Jesus of the Bible and they aren't really Christians. 
You know, I'm not saying you're not a bad per- I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying that Christianity is a particular thing. It's worshiping Jesus. And we also can't, you know, even those who aren't religious see Jesus as we can't just take him as a good moral teacher. A lot of people want to do that. I respect Jesus. I like Jesus. He's a great teacher. I just don't think he's God. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who is truly a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and I love this line, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus is who he said he is, God. Those are really the options, right? He's either a crazy person, he's, you know, a liar, or he's Lord. And to top it all off, he proves his deity by being raised from the dead, which is an impressive way to capstone this thing, right? So three days after being shredded by whips, crowned with thorns, pinned to wood with nails, dying on a cross, Jesus' body comes back to life. He spends 40 days walking around with people, showing that he's well. Hundreds of people who didn't expect him to be alive, many of them were very skeptical and wanted lots of proof, they testified he was alive. And they testified in historical documents that we have. And they did this with nothing to gain except persecution, possibly death. And then through his resurrection, guys, Jesus left us historical proof that he's exactly who he claimed to be. And this explains an interesting phenomenon, guys, because there's a list of most influential people who have ever lived. And you'd say, Jesus is on that list, right? He's in a very short list of most influential people. You could think of like maybe Buddha or you could throw, I don't know, Muhammad or you throw different people on this list. Maybe it's five people, right? Five most influential people that have ever lived. Um, Jesus is certainly on that list. And then there's a list of people who claim to be God. Jesus is the only one on both lists. Isn't that interesting? He, because people that claim to be God besides Jesus have all been kind of found out to be frauds, right? There was always something about their life. There was something about their teaching. There was something kind of off about them that everybody kind of knew. No one sits around going like, maybe David Koresh really was the Messiah. <laughs> like, we don't do that, right? We don't go like, oh, maybe, I don't know, he said some good things. No, that's pretty easy to dispatch. Most of them are like that. Not all of them are quite that bad. But why is Jesus so influential when he claimed to be God, and, and there's three main things. It was the quality of his life. I mean, you look at this guy's life. It's unimpeachable life, right? You look at it, it's a life of love and selflessness. Um, you look at his teaching. <laughs> I mean, nobody ever taught like this man. I mean, you read his teaching and you think, this is incredible. I mean, a lot of like the, just the proverbial sayings we have are his. He came up with this amazing teaching, and then he was raised from the dead. All of the religious leaders stayed dead. And so Jesus was and is fully God. And you guys, this is great news because Jesus shows us how wonderful the one true God is. There isn't a God in heaven that is unlike Jesus. I think sometimes we have this view of like that Jesus is somehow the softer side of God, the more attractive side of God, the more gracious side of God. Jesus is the exact image of God. 
Actually, Hebrews talks about that. Jesus is exactly what God's like. Jesus said, anyone see me, seen the Father. Jesus is exactly what God's like. And so if you read the Gospels and you see Jesus and you love what you see, you love what God's like. Isn't that good news? I think that's wonderfully good news. One author I was reading, he said, let's not have that crazy little sly notion that somewhere behind Jesus is a God that's thinner and less attractive. It's not the case. He is the express image of God. And we'll get into the Trinity next week, but he is the exact image of what God's like. That's super good news. Jesus is fully God. Secondly, Jesus is fully man. And actually, this was just as controversial in the first century. Turns out amongst the Jews, it was very controversial that a man could be God. But among the Greeks, it was very controversial that God could become a man. They thought that was repugnant. They didn't like the physical. They, they saw it as something God wouldn't dirty himself with. And so they had huge problems with him being human. Second John 7, John says this, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. That was actually a huge stumbling block. It wasn't so much that uh, this man is God, but that God be, could, be, could become a man. And so God the Son became a real human through the virgin birth. If you look at Luke 1.35, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Um, the virgin birth, guys, is actually super important when we think of who Jesus is. Virgin birth is important. The fact that, um, that Jesus was born of Mary as his mother, but with no earthly genetic father, right? That it was the Holy Spirit who caused the conception within Mary. This is super important because the, the virgin birth allows God the Son to take on humanity. He gets his humanity from Mary. He had actual Mary's genetics. If you swab the inside of his cheek and send in the test kit, you'd find out, you know, that he's related to all the people he should be through Mary and uh, he's the son of David and all that all the way down the line right? And yet keep his deity. That's why the virgin birth is important. You get both natures, God's nature, human nature. A virgin birth was also important because it allowed Jesus to be truly human without inheriting a sin nature. In that passage, it says, therefore the child will be called holy. That somehow, and I don't totally get this because it's not like we all just inherit our sin natures from our fathers, right? But somehow in the virgin birth, um, this was a way for him to not have inherited a sin nature. He didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have the guilt of Adam on him. Um, Jesus is fully human in both body and soul. This is important. A lot of people don't realize this, but if you look at Hebrews, take a look at Hebrews, because I'll be in Hebrews a lot. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And dropping down a few verses, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus received, or has currently even, a body, a real human body. He had a body that was so real that it could be tired at the well, John 4. A body that could become thirsty on the cross. A, a body that could be beaten and whipped and pierced and bleed and die on the cross. Right? And this was against a heresy called docetism. Docetism, the, uh, the literal meaning of it is to seem. And so there was a heresy that came along, influenced by Greek thought, that said, well, he just looked like he was human. He pretended to drink. He pretended to breathe. He pretended to do all these things when he was really just God kind of projecting these things. And church fathers came along and said, no, 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 no. We can see from Scripture clearly that it is a real human body. Jesus also is given a real human soul. And I think this is one thing we don't always think about. But he had a real human soul, real human inner life, real human soul and mind. And we know this because in the Gospels, Jesus regularly talked about his soul. Especially when he said stuff like, my soul is greatly troubled. 
as he thought about the cross, as he thought about his hour coming. He talked about his soul. He had a real human soul. And this is against a heresy, Apollinarianism, which was a heresy that said that, that Jesus only had a human body, and inside he was all just God. So there's no human insides, there's just a human body. And you might think to yourself, oh no, that's what I thought. Well, that's why we're doing this. So you guys can stop being heretics, right? But, um, <laughs> but it is something that we often think. We often think of Jesus as kind of he's God in a man suit, right? Outside's human, inside's just God. That's not the case. He actually had human insides as well. And it's important that Jesus had both a human body and soul because we have a human body and soul, and we've sinned with both parts, right? We've sinned with our body and our soul, and so he needed to have both parts to save both parts. The Belgic Confession says this, and he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul, in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul has also been lost as well as the body, he must assume both to save both. Does that make sense? He had to be a 100% human, fully human. And what's wild, guys, too, is that I keep saying was and is because the incarnation continues to this day. And I think this is something that a lot of Christians don't grasp. But God, he was, Jesus was always God in, in eternity past. He then takes on humanity. So he, he remains what he was and takes on something that he didn't have, which is humanity. He, he lives that perfect life in our place, dies, raised, ascended. But he remains human right now. There is a real human man in heaven right now reigning. Um, Colossians 2.9 says this, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form. And that was written way after the ascension. Okay, so he doesn't leave his humanity here. He takes not his, only his body, but his soul. And he remains both God and man forever. And I just think, wow, really? Like, isn't that amazing how much God loves us sinners that he took on a human body and soul and is going to stay that way? For eternity, that he would so like connect with us that he would stay human forever. That's huge, guys. Isn't that crazy that he would do that for us? You know, there are gods that people have invented have done something that profound. I mean, it's not like just, we're just one of his creatures. Like, he's like, no, no, I'm going to become one of you guys permanently. It's amazing. He's both God and man. So we put the data together. We find out that Jesus is fully God, fully man, two natures, divine and human, in one person. He's not like split personality, he's one person. And the two natures are important. Now I'm getting into the weeds. The two natures are important, guys, that he has a divine nature and a human nature because it explains a lot of things about Jesus. So here's Jesus, he's on earth during his earthly life, and he retains all the attributes of God that we looked at in the first three weeks. Remember we looked at like he's eternal, he's sovereign, he's omnipresent. He retains all of the attributes of deity somehow. And yet we know from the Gospels that he had to learn as a child. He had, to, he had limited knowledge. He had to expend great effort in following the Father, right? And so you're like, how do these things fit together? It fits together this way. It's two natures. He has a divine nature in which he has all the attributes he's always had. He has a human nature in which he's living as a human being in one person, not schizophrenic, not split personality, both in one person. Mystery? Yes, okay? But the two natures explain how Jesus could be both omnipotent and tired, it can be both of those, unless you have two natures. It also explains how he could be omnipresent and have a specific address in Nazareth, right? Or that he could be sovereign over every atom in the universe at the same time that he's having baby thoughts in a stable. Or that he could be untemptable God. James says God cannot be tempted, and yet tempted as a man. 
It explains how he could be both eternal and about 30 years old, right? It explains how he could be omniscient and a kid learning as he grows up. These things about Jesus are, are a deep mystery, but it helps to know that he has these two natures. So he's one person, two natures. Tons of mystery there. But, and, and he lived, but he lived a life that was, as a true human being. And this is super important. It's super important for everyone in this room that's a sinner. How many sinners? I'm watching. No, I'm just kidding. Um, take note of that. Pastoral visit there. Um, he had to live as a real true human being. You know, he had to live as a real human being because there were promises about a human being coming and saving the world, right? To Eve, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Or to Abraham, that there's going to be a child from you that's going to bless the whole world. That had to be a real human person. Or David was told that a son of his would reign on the throne forever. So he was a real human person with real genetics he got from Mary. Like I said, if you DNA typed him, it would type directly to Mary, not to Joseph. It would type directly to Mary and all along her lineage. He had to be a real human being to be our obedience. Jesus lived a real human life, the real human life you should have lived. It's as if you lived your life over, right? The way it should have been lived. He endured every temptation you experience um, and yet remained faithful to God through the whole thing. And one of the important things about this too, about the glory of what he did, is it wasn't easy for him. Don't you sometimes think that like, oh, because he was God, it was easy. Would have been easy for him to deal with temptations. Not so. It appears from Scripture that the way Jesus dealt with all these temptations was by living as a spirit empowered man. So it wasn't like God in a man suit, like, ha, it doesn't tempt me at all. God can't be tempted. No. He goes around as a human, a spirit empowered man, relying on divine help just the same way you have to. That's the way he did it, which is way more impressive, right? He lived as a spirit-empowered human. We can see that through Luke and Hebrews. We see that when, before he was tempted, remember the Holy Spirit came upon him to empower him before he went into the wilderness? He, he did all that by the power of the Spirit. Um, we know from Hebrews 9 that it was by the Spirit that he offered himself up on the cross. He was empowered to do all these things by the Spirit. And so Jesus endured all these temptations as a spirit-empowered man, not leaning on his divine nature. It wasn't just like, oh, let me shift into divine nature and make this easier. No, he's, he's doing it as a spirit-empowered man. Take a look at Hebrews 5. I want to show you how not easy this was, okay? That this was not easy. Hebrews 5, 7 says this. You really should turn there. It's so wonderful. Oh, it's so good. I'll wait. Hebrews 5, 7. I can't wait real long, but okay, here we go. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, listen to this, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. And so what we have here with this learning, it doesn't mean that he sinned, but at every stage of development in his life, Jesus faced new temptations that were appropriate for that stage of life. And he learned learned how to fully obey God by the power of the Spirit. They actually learned how to do that. And he sinlessly passed every test. Every test. When you look at Hebrews 4.15, it says that he's been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. I think that would do, some meditation would do you good on that. He was tempted in every single way that you're tempted. Because a lot of us were like, well, not the ways I'm tempted. No, it says in every way you were tempted. In every way. I think, was he tempted financially? Sure. He was tempted financially. Was he tempted with anger? Sure. Was he tempted with lust? Was Jesus tempted with lust? He was tempted with everything we're tempted with. Everything we're tempted with. 
And one of the things that shows you is that temptation itself isn't sin. It's the giving into it, right? Jesus was assaulted with temptation throughout his whole life. Every single temptation that we've experienced. And actually, he endured it more painfully and more severely because our temptation ends when? A lot of times when we give in, right? You tempted, you give in, temptation over. You failed, right? Jesus never failed. The temptation continues to be ratcheted up his whole life more and 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 more, and and he never gives in. And so Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, more painfully, more extensively than we ever are. And then it talks about him being made perfect. You go, what about made perfect? He was made perfect in the sense that he became the perfect righteous record for us. He can be our substitute because he dealt with every temptation that you or I have, and he passed the test every single time. Isn't that amazing? You want to worship him more for that? I just think that's a good cause to worship Jesus. Um, he, had to be ju- he had to be a human so he could be our sacrifice, right? A human sin requires human punishment, a real human substitute. That's why the Old Testament sacrifices would never work, right? It's because a human substitute was needed. He had to become human to be our substitute. He had to become human to be our example, He can be our example, guys, because he lived as a spirit-empowered man. Because if he's just God in a man suit, he can't really be our example because we're not God in a man suit, right? But if he lived as a spirit-empowered man, not leaning on his divine nature to to battle all these temptations, but leaning on God, then he can be an example of us of how to live by the power of the Spirit. He, he had to become a man to be our mediator or our priest. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that with the time we have remaining. I want to talk about Jesus as our mediator, as our priest. This is a super important topic for us. We all know inherently, once we're awakened to our sin, that we need some sort of mediator, that we need some sort of uh, one to go between us and God. And in the Old Testament, guys, God gave them what? He gave them a whole priesthood, right? And they had the the temple, and they had sacrifices, and they had a whole system of mediators. But those Old Testament priests, guys, they would enter into the deepest place of the temple, right? The Holy of Holies. Once a year, high priest would go in there. He'd sacrifice for his sins and for the people. And what's really interesting, though, in Hebrews is he says that that Holy of Holies was just a, 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 a copy. It was just like a diorama. It wasn't the real Holy of Holies. The real Holy of Holies in heaven where God is. Hebrews 8.5 says that they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It was like, a, it was like a, a, a copy of the throne room in heaven. And so they would go into this copy place and offer a sacrifice. And those sacrifices, guys, they, they were constant because they couldn't remove sin. Can't remove sin with the blood of animals. It doesn't work that way. And so what was it for? It says in Hebrews 10.1 that it could never take away sins um, or make anybody perfect. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. But these sacrifices served as a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so when they offered those sacrifices, it was actually a reminder of their sin. It didn't cleanse their conscience. It was the one thing God gave them to do. They did it in faith, But all the people in the Old Testament were not saved by animal sacrifices. Any of them that truly trusted in the Messiah to come, which were many, um, they they were saved based on Christ. They were saved based on what Christ was going to do in the future. It's like putting their sins on a credit card, right? So the sins of the Old Testament saints, it was like they were put on a credit card. They were forgiven at that time. David was forgiven. All these people were forgiven for a a payment that was going to be made later. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he pays the debt of all those Old Testament saints who had trusted in him. Um, these, these Old Testament priests, too, it's so interesting. They weren't welcome to stay in the Holy of Holies. They had to offer sin 
they, they had to offer uh, sacrifices for their own sin, and they'd do it, and they'd get out of there, right? They're only allowed in there once a year. They're not allowed in there very long. There's some tradition about, you know, that they would tie a rope to their leg and put some bells on so that when they went in, you know, if the bells stopped jingling, hey, Frank, you dead? You know, and then it's like, oh, he's dead, you know, and you could pull him out. Nobody had to go in there and risk themselves, right? They weren't real welcome in there, okay? This is a once-a-year thing, get in, get out, not something you can linger, right? And you know what that tells me? If I was one of the, the believers back in that time, it would tell me this. It would be like, you know what? If my mediator isn't welcome in God's presence, then what about me? <laughs> if, like, the holiest guy I know can't go in there, what about me? What does that say about my access to God, right? It was a sinner representing sinners. Um, Jesus, guys, is the true mediator. He is the true high priest and is the only mediator we need. And we, as kind of religious beings, we kind of feel like we need other mediators. You know, that was one of the big sticking points of the Reformation, right? Is the Reformers insisted that no one but Jesus was needed as a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the only mediator. He's a perfect mediator, too, because if you want to go between God and man, like a God-man seems like the perfect option, right? That he would be that mediator. And so we don't need priests. We don't need saints. We don't need other people to access. I'm not your priest, by the way. Some of you might come from a background where that's a thing, you know? The reason why, you know, I don't personally, like, wear, like, a vestment or something like that or go around with titles and stuff, I do not want you guys to think of me as a priest. I'm not a priest. You have a priest, Jesus, right? Jesus is that high priest of yours. And so I don't have more access to him than you have. You guys might be like, I'm out of here. No, I thought he did. No, I have gifting for teaching. I have a few other things that I can do for you, but I am not closer to him. Many of you guys that I know, I assume almost all of you guys are closer to him than I am, right? It's just, I'm not closer to him than you. I don't have like a special phone number, right? You know, the, he's got the block caller ID, you know, but I know the number. No, it's not like that at all. We all have access through Jesus. And guys, Jesus is so willing to be your mediator. God does not want a, like, spiritual bureaucracy for you to have to go through to get to him. He wants to be your mediator himself. And look how great a mediator he is. I mean, if you look through Hebrews, it's amazing. Jesus entered into the true holy of holies for us. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not the holy place made by hands, the temple, which was a copy, but into heaven itself and now appears in the presence of God. So he offers his sacrifice to God in the real Holy of Holies. He's entered there, right? And Jesus offered the one sacrifice that'll work. Hebrews 10, 11 says, and each priest stands daily, speaking of the priests in Jerusalem, stands daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for the time that he'll make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those being sanctified. Now, and when you read the Old Testament, if you read through the Bible in a year, you'll find that there's a, a long part in its directions on how to make a tabernacle, okay? And you might be like, I'm not planning on making a tabernacle. Tons of details, right? And God says in Hebrews, he says that the reason for that was is because it was a copy of a heavenly place. And so it was like, do it exactly right. We're, we're actually doing a copy of something, right? And when, when you look at the directions, there's all kinds. There's tables, there's altars, there's like wash basins. There's lots of furniture. You know what one piece of furniture there isn't in the tabernacle? There's no chairs. There's no chairs in there. 
right? There's no chairs in there because the work's never done. They had to keep offering these sacrifices all the time because there was no one and final sacrifice where a priest could just sit down and go, ah, good, I'm just going to kick it the rest of the day. No, no chair. And there also was no chair because no high priest was welcome to stay in there, right? There's no chair, no sitting down in there unless you want to die. What's amazing is it says when Jesus offered that one sacrifice, he what? He sat down. He's the first priest to ever sit down. And you know what? He's still sitting down. He's still sitting down because he has offered the one sacrifice for you and he doesn't need to offer another one because it's done. He says he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? I mean, religion tends to tell you like, oh, you're dirty, you need to do this, you need to do that penance, you need to do this thing, you need to fix it that way. And this says that Jesus has offered it once for all. And and another thing that he said about these sacrifices, he said they can never cleanse the conscience right? They can never cleanse the conscience. You know, your conscience is an important thing. Our conscience is like, it's like a smoke detector for sin, right? Your conscience is supposed to go off only when you've sinned. When you have sin, it should go off, right? And that should tell you something, and that's why it's important not to ignore your conscience, you know? Keep ignoring that thing, maybe it doesn't go off anymore. That's a problem. You don't want that, right? But, and sometimes your conscience will go off when it shouldn't go off, right? You know, a lot of people-pleasing types and stuff like, oh, I feel so bad. Well, did you sin against them? No, I just didn't meet their expectations. I'm like, well, you know, join the human race, you know? Like, shut that thing off, you know? Get it a new battery or something. Your conscience isn't right. But what he's saying here is that, is that Jesus has removed our sins so that when we've repented and asked Jesus for forgiveness for whatever it is, the smoke detector should turn off. You know, this isn't about having a guilty conscience. This is about your conscience being cleansed. Um, Jesus also, this is so cool, remains in, in God's presence for us. He has that chair there because he's staying there. Take a look at Hebrews 7. This is so great. Hebrews 7, 24 says this about him staying in the Holy of Holies for us right now. Hebrews 7, 24. Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In other words, he doesn't die. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the utmost, save to the utmost, I love that, those who draw near to God through him. And then what's that last part? Since he always lives to make intercession for you. What's he doing right now in the Holy of Holies? He's praying for you, personally, by name, you. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing. Jesus prays for you. A lot of times we're like, you know, we'll go to people and and we say, hey, can you pray for me? Can you pray for this? Pray for that, right? And what do you do? You're kind of selective, right? You don't pick the guy that you're like, I'm not sure that dude's a believer, right? Like you pick somebody that you feel like is kind of closer to God or holy or whatever, like, oh, that guy's prayers. That's going to be a good one. Guys, Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you all the time. It says he always lives to make intercession. I love what Robert Murray McChain said about this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Isn't that true? Like, if you could hear, I'd just love to hear a couple minutes of it, right? You'd be like, no way. It's true. Hebrews 7, it's true. Whoa, right? He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that amazing? And look at how willing Jesus is to pray for you. You know, some people, we ask him to pray for us a few times, and you kind of think, oh, he's probably sick of this, you know? But what does it say in the passage? He lives for it. He always lives for it. You say, oh, Lord, thank you for praying for me all the time. He goes, oh, no, I live for it. I always live to make intercession for you. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's doing right now. So how should we respond to this, guys? Think of the doctrine of Christ. We think he's fully man, fully God, 
two natures, one person, gone into the Holy of Holies, um, offered the final sacrifice, they're interceding for us. How should we respond? I just want to read one last passage. It's Hebrews 10, 19. Check it out. It says, he says, therefore, how should we respond? Therefore, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have, listen to this, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Do you have that this morning? Do you have confidence to enter the holy places by the new and living way he's given you through his flesh? Do you have that this morning? And he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Do we have a great high priest over the house of God? Yes, okay. Then what should we do? And there's, there's three lettuces. Let us is. 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Isn't that awesome? Let's not be distant to the Lord. Let's not let our guilty conscience make us distant to the Lord. Let's confess our sin. Let's repent of our sin. Let's receive mercy and cleansing. And then let's move on with his help. So often God's people kind of keep adrift from him and kind of keep away from him, at least for a time when they fall into sin. And he says, no, 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 no. Let's draw near with confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. And then he says, and, and let's find help. Hebrews 2.18 says that because Jesus was tempted, he can help those who are tempted. Right? He knows exactly what your temptations are like. If there was anyone you wanted to ask help from, it would be the one who's been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let's not be distant from the Lord. Let's not meet him just seldom in this book. Let's not just meet him seldom in prayer. Let's draw near to him with full confidence. I mean, if you really believe that Jesus did all that, you should have the boldness of, of a small child toward his father. You know, when little kids come up and they want something, you know, they want a glass of water and it's two in the morning, they come with full confidence. They shouldn't, right? You're like, you might die if you do try that again, right? But we should come, cleansing the blood of Jesus, with that kind of full confidence. We come, we ask for forgiveness, we ask for help. And then look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, guys. Let's not let the cares of the world or the desires of the things of the world keep us from holding on to the greatest treasure in the universe. Right? I mean, what I just told you about, there's something better out there than the God-man? Like, are you kidding me? He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises is faithful. Let's not waver. Let's not be inconsistent. Let's hold on to him because he's faithful. Let's not hold on to him because we're faithful. Let's hold on to him because he's faithful. Like, hey, just hold on to you. You'll take care of everything, right? Okay, and then we look at verse 24. The next lettuce. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a response we have to each other, right? It, it, we need to help each other treasure Christ. We are very individualistic people. This calls us to a life together, to care about each other's perseverance. I mean, you look at Hebrews 3, um, perseverance, following Jesus, holding fast to him, is a community project. It's not an individual project. It's something that we're to do together. So let's help each other treasure Christ. Let's give it thought. He says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And so before you come together, before you make that call, before you make that text, you think, like, what are the 
weaknesses of this person? What are the temptations of this person? What might be the need? You actually gave it some thought. It's premeditated. You premeditated fellowship. You know, you did it on purpose, right? It was first degree, right? Um, and let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So that's, that's the goal, right? It's like, how could I, if I got together with this person or text this person or talk to this person, how could that person leave more ready to do love and good deeds? And then he says, let us gather. Let us gather often. Let us gather more often the more mature we are in Christ. It's so sad to see believers as they get older gathering less. You know, they're like, well, I already learned it all. I don't know what I'd learn there. It's not about your learning. It's about stirring one another to love and good deeds. And he says, do it all the more as what? The day draws near. Like we should be gathering more, not less. You know, we look at the first century and they're gathering like crazy. We gather less. That shouldn't be. We should gather to try and stir one another up. Read scripture together. You find one person this week to read scripture with them. You could, you could read it to them on the phone as they're driving to work or ladies at home. You could be doing it on a speakerphone, reading it to each other. Read and pray together. Do a coffee, meals, on your way to work. Let's not neglect each other. I feel like we're so prone, especially in this culture, to neglect each other. To come in here, see each other, walk away, and neglect each other. And This text says we can make a habit of neglect right? Let's encourage one another with all we know of Christ, guys, all the more. The time is short, right? He's coming soon, physically, on the clouds, just as he left. And, and guys, the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us to celebrate the fact, it's a celebration, to celebrate the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, right? That he has made that one final sacrifice. Uh, the bread and the cup, the bread is gluten-free, so don't worry about that. The bread and the cup symbolize that one final sacrifice that he made when he sat down in the true Holy of Holies. That's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, is we're reminded of that. And unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, what were they a reminder of? They were a reminder of sin. <laughs> Thanks, you know? They were a reminder of sin every time. This is a reminder of his sacrifice. This is a reminder that your sins have been forgiven. This is a reminder that his sacrifice is stronger than any sin you brought in this room, right? He sat down. He is confident about this. You may be like, well, I don't know if he took care of this. Jesus is like, I'm sitting. It's done. Yeah, but I, I really feel like, you know, I know I asked for forgiveness for this, but it keeps on haunting me. And Jesus is like, see me sitting? <laughs> I'm sitting. I got it done. Well, I just don't know if you really got it done. He's like, bro, I'm sitting. Believe this. I know Jesus said bro, but I might say sis. I don't know. <laughs> Have you received this amazing gift? You could receive it today. It's as simple as confessing your sin to the Lord and telling him you want to receive Jesus, that you want to receive him as your high priest, as, as that final sacrifice. That's what it takes. It's free. It's as free as you come up here and grab these. Come up here and grab these. We don't charge. It's not like a box, you know, like, tink, tink, you know, where you put some money in or something like that. No, it's a gift. He's freer than that. He wants to give you himself today. He's never denied that request. Nobody's ever come to him, confessed their sin, and said they wanted to receive Jesus as their high priest and sacrifice. He said, mm, not you. He's never done it. This won't, be the, this won't be the time he does. Forgiveness and a new life are as free as this cup. Anyone can have Jesus. His love is for you. Let's pray. Father, we are um, amazed once again, by who you are and what you've done. It is just entirely strange to me that you would care this much about creatures. It is entirely strange to me that you would care this much about creatures that don't care about you. 
it's strange that you would love creatures that rebelled against you, that wanted to have nothing to do with you, that would have preferred you gone, dead, non-existent, and yet you sent your own son to die for us. That's entirely strange to me. I love it. I'm so thankful for your love that's not like ours. And Jesus, we are entirely in awe of you, that you would permanently become one of us, remaining fully God, but somehow also fully one of us. That seems like such an excessive love. It's hard to even get it. And we thank you that you love us like that. And Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to this reality, that we can read these things and rejoice in them and know that they are for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for doing that. And we pray, Lord, we thank you for the work that you did even during this service. And we pray in the hours to come and in the days to come that you would do like McChain said, that you'd fill the chambers of our heart, all the chambers of our heart, with such a view of your son's sweetness and desirability that we would have no room for the things of this world, for sin and for Satan and for rebellion against you. There'd just be no room for it. Too full. Too full to want the things that Satan baits his hooks with. Not interested, because we have something better. We thank you, Lord, that you, in Jesus Christ, are all for us. All your promises are yes in Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.